Welcome to Church Project. If you've been here a hundred times or this is your first time, we're just happy that you're here. Um, the name Church Project has um, a, a fair amount of significance. The first is that we are a church, and that idea comes from the book of Acts. And if you look through the book of Acts, you see two things that mark this idea of the church. And the first is that they corporately gathered together like we're doing this morning. A lot of families getting together, becoming one big family. And then the other mark that marked that church is that we get together outside of this gathering and we actually do life with one another. And that is um, what we call house church. And those things happen generally on Wednesdays. It's not happened this Wednesday. Obviously, um, we have a Christmas Eve service that's kind of replacing that. Um, The other part of the name is a project. We are a work in process. We don't have this all figured out. None of us do. We're all kind of sinful people that God is using, regardless of our sin, to keep moving forward the message of hope into this world. And that's a sweet thing to be a part of. We uh, have been studying through the book of Luke. Um, We've been in the book of Luke for a little over two years, and we find ourselves almost at the end of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22. And so if you just go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, um, there should be Bibles on your left or your right. I encourage you to grab one of those. I, I printed out some uh, outlines for this morning's message. If uh, those of you in the front, if you'd pass the extra ones towards the back so that people in the back could have them and some people like them. Some people would rather just make an airplane out of it and, uh, you know, whatever suits you, whatever helps you uh, focus on um, what God might intend for you to hear, I just encourage you to pursue that. So um, maybe pass those back, open up the book of uh, Luke, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and um, as you're getting there, I want to kind of recap a little bit. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is starting his journey towards Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 19, he gets there. And it's not even three chapters into that in which there's a plot to kill Jesus. And Jesus is in a private room. Uh, celebrating the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. It's a Jewish holiday that they had been celebrating for years. And Jesus is partaking in this time. It's kind of a private matter. He's up there with his disciples, and they're in this room, and they're discussing a lot of stuff. And Luke chapter 22 has kind of been an account about the things in which they've been talking about. And uh, John Uh, chapters 13, 14, and 15 actually gets into really great detail about a lot of the things that they talked about. But we're not going to go there. We're going to stay in the book of Luke and and see what um, Jesus might intend to be teaching us. And it's in that context that we find ourselves today. Jesus' journey to the cross by the way of Jerusalem among the presence of his disciples. And Jesus is going to draw our attention to truths that are well-received by the disciples, but not really well-understood. They are truths that the disciples are excited about coming true, that they're energetic in partaking in, but don't understand those truths enough to apply them in the manner in which Jesus desired for them to be applied. And 
considering that it's Christmas, it kind of reminds me a little bit of an experience that Emily, my wife, and I had the first time we're married. You can think about Christmas, and a lot of different things probably come to your mind. Things that you do, traditions that you and your family hold. You go to certain places, you spend it with certain people, or you do certain things. Well, in the Shelton household, I grew up with the tradition of fudge during Christmas time. I mean, you said Christmas, I said fudge. You said, oh, it's getting close to Christmas. I said, oh, I haven't had fudge in a little while. Where's the fudge? Okay. It was like December hit and my mom would have fresh, moist, rich, homemade fudge almost prepared all of the time. And so Emily, being the amazing wife that she is, wanted to extend this tradition in our home. And I'm like, yeah, baby, go get it, you know? So she got with my mom, and they walked through the steps about how my mom has been preparing fudge over the last 25 years or something like that. And uh, she gets the recipe card, and um, Emily's excited, and she has good intentions about, you know, making her hubby some fudge. I'm excited about it. And... uh, There's only a couple problems with the initial batch of fudge. I come home, I'm ready to devour because I've been hearing that this is what's going to happen today. And I'm like, oh boy. And it tasted amazing, don't get me wrong. But it wasn't the right consistency. You actually had to eat it out of a spoon. It was like in a bowl. You know, it didn't set up well. And, and it, to really, if you think about it, that's not really Emily's fault. Because she didn't have the experience that my mom did. She didn't have the, the knowledge of consistency, the timing, the palate, the mixing techniques. And on top of all that, she had the most ambiguous recipe instructions known to man. So... It's not difficult to see that Emily just didn't know enough about the fudge. She didn't have enough experience in fudge making to make the fudge the way the fudge should be made. Similarly, the disciples, they were excited about what Jesus was teaching them. They wanted to partake in what Jesus was teaching them, but they didn't understand it enough. They didn't know enough experientially in order to apply those truths accurately. So Jesus, knowing that he's got a lot to teach his disciples, is preparing the disciples. And he's doing it with an understanding of preparing them for the things that are going to come. And not only these texts that we're going to read this morning, but the entire chapter of Luke 22 is based on this conversation between Jesus, his disciples in the upper room, and they're centered on preparing the disciples, preparing them for change. And specifically in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' focus on preparing his disciples for change revolves around the idea of life as a Christian after Christ. Life for disciples, life for disciples of Jesus. If you're here this morning and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then Jesus' intention is to prepare us for life after Christ. Life in the period of time when Christ is gone. Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing us for life in the kingdom as Christians of God when God is not here physically. He's describing the change and what that change is going to look like and what is going to be required because of the change. So, 
Think about all of that. Boil it down maybe to two questions as we dig into the text, beginning in verse 35. Think about what ushered in the change that this text is going to talk about, and what does life in the kingdom of God require because of it? So what spurred on the change, and what does life in the kingdom of God require because of the change? And maybe follow along as I read. We're going to start in verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And he said to them, And they said to him, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said, It is enough. We've been in the book of Luke for two years. Interestingly enough, oddly enough, this text is talking about a text, an event in Luke chapter 10 that Aaron taught on almost a year ago to the week. You go back, listen to that message. And Jesus. Um, sends his disciples out, sends out 72 people, and among them are the disciples, and they are given kind of odd instructions. Don't take with you a knapsack, don't take with you sandals, don't take with you a money bag on this journey as you go, okay? And as much as is told to us from the account in Luke chapter 10, the disciples were well received by those that they visited, Okay. They would go out into towns and, and ask to stay at someone's home, and they'd share the, the love of Christ with those that they stayed with, performing miracles and advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you remember in Luke chapter 10, if you keep reading on in that same passage, you see uh, how they returned to Jesus. They returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, what sweet Things God must have done through them during that time. And not only that time, but I mean, the Gospels as a whole depict that this Jesus is coming in power and he's coming in authority, performing great signs, taming nature, teaching with great wisdom, having no equal. And the disciples are there and they're amongst it and they see it and they experientially hold on to it and they see. Time and again that no one can stand against this guy. He just continues to triumph over difficulty. Triumph over people's opinions. Triumph over it all. And so it's just not that difficult to think about the temptation that those near to Jesus might have had because of that experience. To think that like this gospel thing, this gospel spreading thing up to this point is pretty simple. I mean, you don't have to concern yourselves with what you're going to eat or where you're going to live or how you might put clothes on your backs. Jesus' mission has us made in the shade. I mean, largely, if you read through the Gospels up to this point, looking for the persecution of the disciples or looking for the persecution of Jesus' church, you might be surprised at how empty you come up. Yes, they got kicked out of a couple places. That's true. Yes, they got mocked by the leaders of their day, but 
Those things hold no comparison to the stories that we find in the book of Acts or the context in which some of the epistles are going to be written in. And so Jesus, knowing that the change is coming, he says in verse 36, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. Change is coming. And I hate change. You know, just rubs me the wrong way. I, I don't know what it is. You, you ask Emily, I like my routines. I kind of like it this way. If the plan has been set out and something changes in the plan, just kind of, just don't like it. You know what I'm saying? And Jesus is saying, guess what? Wake up. Change is coming. It doesn't matter what your experience is up to this point. It's not going to be like that moving forward. And I can imagine that the word of caution might have been received by those whom uh, was with him kind of in the same way that like new parents like receive warning about that angelic four-month-old. You know, you, you, you just got this new kid and he's just amazing. And then you compare like the three-year-old in Walmart and they're like picking things up off the shelves and throwing them and you're just like... Our kid will never be like that. They are never going to act like that. Or maybe even like the way newlyweds are trying to be encouraged from those who have been married 15, 20, 30 years and saying like, please, we are never going to have problems finding time to spend with one another. Like they just don't get the fact that we're in love and Maybe it's the same way that new drivers receive warning about how speed limits are there for a reason. Or maybe how young people might receive warning about how peer pressure is real in middle school. It's real in high school and it's, it's real in life. So the reality is, even though you may have an experience that's contrary, change is coming. So the question here might be, what made the change? Why would Jesus be saying one thing 10 chapters ago and now teaching something else here? And then to get practical, what, what does that change have to do with us? What implications does that change have on our lives? And what does this change require of us? And what things do we need to know more fully to live this Christian life in the kingdom of God. So the first question, what made the change? Verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. There it is, for. It's that like irritating, small, kind of insignificant three-letter word. For, a conjunction used to express cause. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So think about this. The line in the sand that distinguishes between the way things were and the way things will be is a quote from an Old Testament passage out of the book of Isaiah chapter 53. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And some people have said that that phrase, and he was numbered with the transgressors, means that because Jesus was hung on a cross between two thieves, people considered Jesus to be a sinner. 
Other people have speculated that because Jesus hung around sinners in his earthly ministry, that people considered Jesus to be a sinner. But the problem with both of those interpretations is that they don't take into context what Isaiah chapter 53 is even talking about. So, let's go there. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53. If you close your Bible and you stick your finger in the middle of your Bible, you might hit um, Psalms and Proverbs. And then if you just keep turning to the right, you're going to hit Isaiah at some point. And let's, uh, let's go into Isaiah 53. And we're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter, which is where the quotation comes from. And back up a verse. We should back up more, but this will get us there. So uh, starting in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. Here it is. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So what this text says is that God put forth his son Jesus as a means, as a way to pay for the penalty of our imperfection. That's what the Bible calls sin. And get this, this, this is, this is the, 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 the hurrah moment. And the way that God did that, the way that he justified that was that God considered Jesus to be sin and punished him as a sinner so that Jesus could make intercession for the transgressor. This chapter in Isaiah 53 cites Jesus being punished as sin for the sake of the sinner over 20 times. And it's really a foreshadow of what the New Testament says was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, okay? 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Or Romans 8.3. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do, by sending his, his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the event that distinguishes between the way things were and the way things will be in this text is the glorious truth that Jesus was seen as a sinner so that you as a sinner might be called a child of God. That's sweet. The event that causes change, that causes Jesus to say, hey, look, there was a time when you didn't necessarily need to take anything with you, but that time is over. You need to gather your things. You need to prepare because the time of change has come. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Change is coming. Be prepared. Go buy a sword. 
Come and get them. It seems difficult for me to think about this idea of preparation, this idea of going and buying a sword and using a sword as a way to further the gospel of Jesus when you think about texts like Matthew 5, where it talks about loving your enemies, or Luke 6, where it talks about turning the other cheek when you're assaulted, or even Jesus' reaction to Peter. A little bit later on in this very chapter, where Peter like whips out a sword, cuts off some guy's ear, and Jesus says, hey, quit. Or even maybe Jesus' reaction here in this text. Verse 38. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, it is enough. It's like almost like you can hear Jesus' tone. Like, that's enough talk about swords. Like I'm talking about preparing and you're pointing to physical things. That's enough talk about swords. You're not seeing the picture that I'm painting and so you're focusing on the wrong things. So the question still remains, what might Jesus be saying in the context of these verses? We know change is coming. The way things were aren't the way things will be. That which was well-received and somewhat easy seems to give way to that which is going to be rejected and difficult. We know that this change was marked by Jesus' death on the cross. So the question remains, so why would the death of Jesus create change in this world? Because with the death of Jesus the rule of God was pushing back the frontier of darkness. Let me say that again. Because with the death of Jesus, the rule of God was pushing back the frontier of darkness. Consider the trajectory of the Gospels as they speak about the coming of Jesus. Mark 1, 15. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or Matthew 12, 28. The kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus' kingdom had come for thousands of years in human history. That which was anticipating, that which was being prophesied about, that which was being hoped in had come. And it came in power. Our king and his Kingdom came in power. Think of Matthew 11, verse 5. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. The king had come, and with him came his kingdom. And he was pushing back the frontier of darkness, showing authority over the effects of sin in this broken world because his kingdom was not of this world. We're going to see in a couple uh, weeks that there's this interaction between this guy named Pilate, which is a Roman official, and Jesus. And Pilate asks Jesus about the nature of his kingdom and his kingship. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, 36. It's not a kingdom that will come in the way that you're looking, but know that it is in your midst. You remember this? Luke 17, 20 through 21. And that king and his kingdom 
was loosening the stranglehold grip of darkness on this world. And the reality is, Satan and the fallen condition of this world doesn't like it one bit. The triumph of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection mark a moment in time when the ruler of this world, Satan, and his influence and power over people was decisively broken. Let me say that again. The triumph of Jesus in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection mark a moment in time when the ruler of this world, Satan, and his influence and power over people was decisively broken. And the reality is, Satan does not want to go into the night quietly. Therefore, verse 36, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. With Jesus' triumph, he made defeat of Satan certain. And with that defeat in mind, Satan's rebellion against that king His kingdom and those who follow him is going to ever increase in intensity until the king returns, until the king deals with him fully. That change has come. It came when Jesus came. Therefore, be prepared. Be prepared as a believer of Jesus to live in Jesus' kingdom, knowing full well that the kingdom and his kingship that we follow is rejected by the world that we live in. What a story. What an amazing story that our God has written. (laughs) He's brought with him a kingdom. And that kingdom is pushing back the frontier of darkness as it grows and as the good news of the gospel goes forth and the spreading of his kingdom is marked by difficulty and suffering as the spiritual battle for soul is waged on earth. As the kingdom of our king collides with the broken world pushing back the frontier of darkness. That is a Hollywood quality story. So, what does that story have to do with us? What does life in the kingdom of God require of us because of it? Maybe that's a different way of saying it. What specific points of application can we draw from this text that help us to prepare for engaging in the world that we live in while we're a part of Jesus' kingdom that lives in the context of this world? Well, thank goodness there's the Bible. God hasn't left us without a recipe on how to engage this world. I'm thankful for that. Remember Jesus' intention in the chapter that we're even reading, that we've been studying, preparing the disciples, and that preparation looks similar here in this text as it has in the entire book of Luke chapter 22. That preparation to live as active participants in the kingdom of Jesus could be summed up with the idea of faith. 
To live a life in the kingdom of Jesus requires faith. And not only initial faith, but ongoing faith. Let me say that again. The life in the kingdom of God requires faith. And not only initial faith, but ongoing faith. And to live a life in the kingdom of God, that faith needs to be fueled by something. And the thing that it needs to be fueled by is the idea of remembrance. That's what this whole chapter has been talking about. We talked about the Lord's Supper. What is the whole idea around this Lord's Supper? It's the idea of remembrance. And so the idea of remembrance fuels our faith. Look at verse 35 through 36. Jesus draws our attention back to a specific experience of trusting in him and his faithfulness in the past to point us towards the assurance to trust in him in the future. Remember that time when you went out and you lacked nothing, you, where my provision met your needs, where the times of power, authority, and triumph that you experienced with me. Remember how I was counted as a sinner so that you as a sinner might enter into my presence. Remember the fullness of history was awaiting this moment where Jesus walked to the cross denying the shame so that we might, he might be the perfecter of our faith and sit at the right hand of God. It's a beautiful text. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Remember these things. Remember them as you encounter difficulties. Let us consider the faithfulness of God in our past to fuel our faith in him in the present. Faith is fueled by the exercise of remembrance. Therefore, remember. Real practical question. You struggling with faith today? Ask the question, how are you doing in remembering Christ? Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So remembrance gives assurance for faith. In, in other words, Faith is grounded on the idea of remembrance. You have faith because of the things that you've experienced in your past. And faith is future-oriented in this text. It, it's focused on things that are hoped for. People don't say that they hope it doesn't snow yesterday. That doesn't make sense. People say, I hope it snows on Christmas Day. Unless you're a dairyman and then you don't want it to ever snow. But... It's snow in certain places, just not in others. And the product of hoping is anticipation. Think about it. Hoping for something. That hope, that eagerly awaiting builds anticipation. So the practical question, are you struggling with faith today? How are you doing in allowing hope 
in Christ's promise to fuel your anticipation of his triumph in your life. Because it's real and it's going to happen because he's done it in the past. So what's the conclusion here? How do all of these pieces come together and impact us practically? We've seen that as Christians, we're part of Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom that's coming in power. It's pushing back the frontier of darkness. And because of that collision, there will be pain and difficulty and hardship living as citizen in Jesus' kingdom. And we seem to actively be prepared to live in that life, in that kingdom. It requires faith. And not just initial faith, but ongoing faith. And that faith has to be fueled by the act of remembering the faithfulness of God in our past and then live life today with hope that the things promised will be realized in your future. Allowing remembrance to fuel faith so that we can walk in faith today, hoping in the fulfillment of promises made to us in our future, which should breed some sweet anticipation if you think about it. I think of Christmas coming up. I wrote this, I was like a couple weeks ago, and it's like, uh, it's like three days from now, four days from now. And that's not really a shock that Christmas is coming up. If you've been at all engaging in this world, you walk around in stores and you see the season changing and you uh, turn on the radio and you hear all kinds of um, Christian music or uh, maybe you've looked at a Google calendar in the last you know, month and a half and you see that it's coming up. The signs of Christmas have been pretty obvious and it's something that we as a culture anticipate. And that anticipation is built on expectations that we have from our past. We remember special days with family or excited events, and therefore we see Christmas coming. We do things almost weeks, sometimes months in advance, because we see Christmas coming. We do it in preparation. We prepare with excitement, because we know on December 25th, Christmas will be here. We, are, we have allowed the idea of remembrance to shape our attitude and our behavior in the present. Because we remember, we can't help but begin to hope in what this Christmas might bring this year for you or your family. And as we consider hope, it begins to build anticipation. And it just is cyclical and it works on itself and it builds. And so remembrance fuels faith, which is future-oriented in the idea of hope, which breeds anticipation We need that as we engage in this world, as we live in the kingdom of God. And my hope for us as our church family, as we enter into the final days of Christmas, that we continue to let Jesus' kingship and his kingdom and the idea of faith 
shape, affect, and influence our time of remembrance of Jesus' birth. But I don't want it to stop there. With simply remembering. But that I pray that it will fuel our faith in our lives today. So that we will live a life marked by faith as we are hopeful in the challenges ahead with the reality that as John 16, says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. May our faith grow in the truth that Christmas season is about remembering so that we might fuel our faith today. Walking by faith, considering the faithfulness in our past as a guarantee of his faithfulness to come, our hope. My prayer is that we eagerly anticipate that hope as you engage in this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have written such a great story and as we consider it and as we remember it and reflect on it, Lord, and as we remember and reflect on the moments of faithfulness that you have done in our lives or in the lives of people around us, Lord, I pray that that just continues to fuel our faith to live with the assurances that those things that you've done in our past, you will continue to do in our future. Lord, I pray that you allow us to be active participants in the kingdom that you have inaugurated with your coming. Lord, I pray that you continue to do great things in and amongst this church. Lord, I pray that this time of Christmas would just be a sweet opportunity to live in faith about what you've done and therefore what you will do. Lord, we love you. We ask this in your name. Amen. As the worship team just kind of plays in the background, I just want to take a couple moments of reflection. What what is God teaching you through his word today? And I find that generally the only correct response is the response of worship. And we get to do that in a lot of different ways in our lives. And right now, one of those might be just sit and reflect what God's teaching you, how he's moving you. One of those might be standing and singing songs with uh, us corporately and proclaiming some of the eternal truths about who God is and what he's done and what he will do. Another one might be partaking in communion, taking the cracker and dipping it into the grape juice and remembering what he's done. And the sweet thing about communion in that text that we've read is that it says, and we will proclaim his faithfulness until he returns. So even the act of communion is looking back so that we might look forward. And so my prayer as we march into Christmas is that we would reflect on the coming of Jesus so that we might anticipate his return. Amen.